Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The New York Times has provided a valuable public service in the last 24 hours. They've reminded us just what we are up against in this country right now, the kinds of falsehoods and lies and nonsense to which we are exposed by media outlets that are supposed to be the gold standards of truth, the uh, ultimate in journalism. And yet, if you were to read the New York Times editorial in response to an attempted mass assassination yesterday of Republican members of Congress by a left-wing Bernie Sanders-supporting Democrat, you would think that somehow Republicans once again were to blame this time for a mass shooting targeting Republican elected representatives. It is completely disgusting what the Times has written. Uh, it's wrong, and I mean factually, but morally and ethically. This goes beyond just disagreement. There is something wrong with the people writing editorials at the New York Times, the editorial board. They have a disconnect. They have a moral defect. This is not normal. This is not in the realm of political disagreement. We are still praying and hoping for a full recovery by Representative Scalise. You have others who are traumatized both physically and psychologically from yesterday's events. And the New York Times writes the following. Was this attack evidence of how vicious American politics has become? Probably. In 2011, when Jared Lee Loeffner opened fire in a supermarket parking lot, grievously wounding Representative Gabby Giffords and killing six people, including a nine-year-old girl, the link to political incitement was clear. Before the shooting, Sarah Palin's political action committee circulated a map of targeted electoral districts that put Ms. Giffords and 19 other Democrats under stylized crosshairs. Conservatives and right-wing media were quick on Wednesday to demand forceful condemnations of hate speech and crimes by anti-Trump liberals. They're right. Though there's no sign of incitement, as direct as in the Giffords attack, liberals should, of course, hold themselves to the same standard of decency that they ask of the right. This is an abomination in words. First of all, Jared Loeffner was uh, obsessed with Giffords years before Sarah Palin published any map. The map merely had congressional districts with uh, sites pointing with sites on them. Didn't have individuals. Had congressional districts, an inanimate thing, and there is zero proof of any kind that uh, the shooter in the Giffords case saw the Sarah Palin map. 
And there's lots of proof that Jared Loeffner was just truly, completely insane. You see, this is what the liberals don't want to get into. And, you know, I have to say, uh, some of my fellow conservatives yesterday were a, a little too much in Boy Scout mode on this one. I was disappointed to see that they, they didn't want to come out and, and talk about the broader environment. It's just the killer. It's just the person who pulls the trigger. Well, yeah, that person's responsible legally, morally. But there is a broader environment now that is toxic and that is creating a more fertile environment for the kind of action that we saw yesterday. That is just a fact. I mentioned Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And I mean, there are there are groups that are identifiable that use rhetoric. People say, oh, Black, Black Lives Matter would never say anything about violence. Really? When they scream for dead cops, which I heard them doing myself. I saw them carrying signs blocks from my apartment in New York City about racist murdering cops. If you really believe the cops are out there killing people because of the color of their skin, would you be morally wrong to take up arms in defense of your of your perceived group that is under siege? They say, oh, Buck, well, it's just hyperbole. There's hyperbole and then there's incitement. At some point, it crosses a line. With Antifa saying that we are in the midst of fascism and that violence against those who speak in favor of Trump or conservatism or the Republican Party should be attacked, there is a, there is a moral uh, exception to violence against people who have not been violent against you. Antifa, this group, is saying it. There are hundreds, there are thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of them. That matters. When you have the media running with stories suggesting that Donald Trump is a traitor to the country. It is a capital crime. And you have the media insinuating that the president of the United States has committed treason. Some of them ask the question openly. Aaron Burnett on CNN. Isn't this treason? That was her question. I'm just stating the facts. These are just facts. But yesterday it was, oh no, we're not going to play the game that they play on the left. We're not going to make this about more than just the shooter. Really? Maybe we should. I thought more about it after yesterday's show, and I was trying to be analytic, and I was trying to be honest, and I was trying to get to the truth of all this. And I think I should have been a little bit harsher, even than I was. And I talked about Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and those are just the groups that come to mind. And, uh, and a caller rightfully pointed out that the overall media narrative, too, is suggesting that our elected representatives on the Republic, in the Republican Party, well, most notably, of course, Donald Trump is the head of some crime syndicate, and that he's an evil person, that he has uh, seditious and traitorous instincts and has engaged in such behavior, that he could be the end of the world as we know it, and that is not an exaggeration, that his health care policy will kill people, they say, that his climate change, that withdrawing from the Paris climate change agreement will kill countless numbers of people. When you say that, there are consequences. This is not, hey, I think the marginal tax rate should be 37%. No, actually, it should be 25%. Well, let's look at the numbers. That's a political disagreement. This isn't, hey, I think that maybe we should tighten up our immigration system so that we're only taking people that add skills 
and that are self-sufficient right away. No, I just think we should take people for, for humanitarian reasons. Or, or even, no, I think we should take anybody who wants to come to this country. That's a political disagreement. Hey, you, you're supporting somebody that wants to destroy the country and the world and people will die because of that person? People are dying. There's blood on your hands as a supporter of that person. That's not a political disagreement. That's an accusation, and that is incitement. And it's not coming from people who we expect to engage in exaggeration. It's not coming from people who don't have a following. It's not coming from anonymous avatars on Facebook or Twitter. It's coming from the biggest news stations and and newspapers in the country with one exception day in and day out they are pushing this story they are pushing this narrative they want people to go to prison they want lives to be ruined they have been infected this is a widespread sickness it is a psychological ill and they will not accept it they will not confront it they will not deal with it We've come up with different ways to describe it. Trump derangement syndrome or, you know, now Trumpophobia. But here we are, right after someone takes it upon himself to attack Republicans specifically because of their partisan affiliation. These are our fellow Americans and there are representatives of this country, of the federal government. Someone attacks them, tries to kill as many of them as possible. By a, a near miracle, we don't have a high a high death toll. Thank God we had some Capitol Police on the scene. Otherwise, as Rand Paul said, it would have been a killing field. It would have been a bloodbath. They would have been pinned down. Who knows how long it would have taken for police to get there. And he could have just walked around to, uh, to defenseless people. I shudder to even think. You don't even want to play this scenario out in your mind. But the New York Times wants to lecture the country about Sarah Palin and her role, which is non-existent, in Gabby Giffords, these people are insane. They have lost it. They are no longer connected to any objective reality of what is happening in this country. And they have no ethics. There's something deeply disturbing. There's a lack of human connection from these writers. Do they stop to think a bit about the families of those congressmen and others who were there, congressional aides, lobbyists? They were almost all murdered yesterday. Some of them are going to live with that trauma, by the way, which psychological trauma is, as many of you know, is a wound that can linger for years, for decades. And it is very real. It affects your health. They will be dealing with that for who knows how long. But the New York Times wants to write about how we should think about Sarah Palin's non-existent role. They said that there was a direct link. They've now retracted it because it was so bogus. But this just shows you where their minds are. The tribalism has, has rotted out the basic decency in their brains that applies to those who disagree with them. It's just gone now. It's It's been numbed away somehow. Yesterday, I didn't want to push too far. I didn't want to try to uh, get more attention for 
my show or what I'm saying by overstating. So I was walking the line between, yes, it's the shooter's fault, but there are also other political implications here. But what I've seen since then is that, no, actually, we, we can't sit around and say to ourselves that moderate discourse will, will, will return and that we should cool our passions here and, and have a moment of unity because the left is a real problem. They are dehumanizing the Republican Party, Donald Trump. They are seeing themselves as not just the guardians of, of a better future, but they view it as necessary to take action, even violent action, not quite as violent as what happened yesterday, but attacking people, punching people, breaking things, because of how terrible it would be for Trump's agenda to come to fruition. Because there's no longer, as they see it, any common ground to be had. This is all or nothing. It's zero sum. That shooter yesterday is responsible. But there are far too many people that are feeding the sentiments in this country right now that he decided to radicalize upon and that, yes, he took the action, yes, he made the decision, But that doesn't mean we aren't allowed to call out not just the reckless discourse of the left, but the disregard of common decency and humanity that is now a reality whenever we're talking about New York Times, Washington Post, these left-wing outlets. They just, they view Republicans as almost subhuman, as monsters, Trump to them is a monster, and those who support him are monstrous. That has consequences, everybody. Ideology has consequences. Thoughts have implications and lead to actions. And the Democrat Party and the left need to be held accountable for theirs. It's telling that uh, on the left, uh, ignorance of guns and the Second Amendment and the laws around guns, uh, the basic functioning of different firearms, is not considered an impediment to being a a, uh, makeshift expert on the spot after a shooting incident as long as you're anti-gun, right? So, So you can go on TV, you can go on MSNBC, you can go... Uh, on any number of different channels, or you can write for you know, Daily Kos or HuffPost or one of these places, and make a fool of yourself on the facts. You know, re- refer to a you know the the fully automatic nine millimeter pistol that he had or something. I mean, you you can just say things that are nonsensical and and factually in- inaccurate. Um, and the left doesn't care because as long as you're saying guns are bad, guns are bad. As long as you're part of that chorus, it's fine. Uh, this is. Uh, they'll support you. There's no no way, I suppose, for us to ever get past having the same argue, the same discussion about guns every time one of these things happens. The same people uh, putting forward arguments that can't withstand a moment's scrutiny, but nonetheless, it, it makes them feel good to say it, so they say it anyway. 
And I, I should probably know better than to uh, turn to The View, or all of us should know better than to turn to The View for knowledge of guns and firearms and what to do uh, in order to stop gun violence. Um, but here's a, here's the discussion there, and it's similar to, the, to what it is on CNN and MSNBC and other places as well. Go for it. If I was living in one of these states, yeah. uh, ca- uh, open carry open or whatever carry, they are, uh, I would never take. I would never do public transportation. I'd be afraid that some guy on the subway would have a fit, just go mad and shoot somebody else. Well, See, I feel it's follow, easy to do. I feel we follow the lead of other countries. I, I mean, if you look at Japan, there there is almost no gun violence. In fact, it's like the chance of being uh, killed by by a gun are, are just the same as chances in the United States of being struck by lightning. It's like one in a million. They don't have a second Why don't we? Okay, okay, okay. A couple, a couple of things here. Uh, by the way, these are that the second lady spoke, I believe, is uh, Sonny Hostin, who is a legal expert uh, or is a, was a former prosecutor, and and the first one is is just Joy Behar. So she's just Joy Behar, but um, who obviously she seems to be an ignoramus about everything, which I, I guess that's a that's a brand of sorts to just not know anything about everything. That's almost a skill, uh, and it's one that she has. Uh, but to, to the point about open carry, you don't even have to get into the Second Amendment and the need for an armed citizenry and how that is uh, a, a crucial, fundamental right for the perpetuation of a of a republic and a uh, republic of laws and not a tyranny. But but that's always just think about what she's saying. So people who are legally carrying guns, she's worried are going to freak out. I guess she doesn't know about the 300 million or so guns that are already in circulation in the country. And she says, oh, in these open carry states, uh, well, I don't know what I would do. Uh, Vermont has among the most lax gun laws in the country, which is always interesting for Bernie Sanders, for example, as a senator from there. He's kind of pro-gun because he has to be because he's from Vermont. Not pro-gun, but less anti-gun than some of his uh, Democrat colleagues. Uh, very little gun crime in Vermont. She brings up Japan. This is the game that we, we, we go through the same examples, the same ser- uh, series of, of what ifs and how abouts. OK, Japan has very low crime, period. Um, but you have very uh, high levels of gun ownership. In you know, you, you bring out Japan and say that people don't own guns. I bring out Switzerland, like lots of people own guns. Israel, lots of people own guns. I mean, you know, or have guns. Um and then the crime rates are very low. I mean, the crime rate in Switzerland is very low. The crime rate in Vermont per capita is very low. If we're going to make it about this country. So, uh, and the notion that adding laws, you know, like people want to analyze what happened yesterday, this terrible mass assassination attempt. And we're still, by the way, praying for Steve Scalise, waiting to see what what's going to be the final outcome there. He's been through three surgeries today. Uh, getting shot in the pelvis because of the internal bleeding can be uh, can be fatal. Uh, so the, this is he is, as far as I understand, and we'll keep checking the the news wires while we're on the show. Uh, his condition is still critical, uh, but people want to argue about guns without knowing anything about guns, and they just want to stand up and posture and direct attention to themselves. And I think in this case, because the gun argument, the gun was legally purchased. Um, there's not much of a discussion to be had, but they'll do it anyway. Um, we're going to hit this more team. Stay with me. The- 
the Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Welcome back, team. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. John in Ohio on WWVA. What's going on, John? How you doing, Buck? I have a couple more examples for you if you want to talk about these uh, accusations and incitements. Sure. You mentioned the largest newspapers in the country, and in large part, I agree with you on that. And I would like to mention a couple examples on the other side as well. Okay. The uh, most popular talk radio show, radio show host in the country, recently said that it was a campaign position of Democratic Party the cops deserve to die. That's an accusation as well, and a pretty nasty one. I'm sorry, who okay. said this? Rush Limbaugh. What did he say? He said that it's, it's a it's a position of the Democratic Party that cops deserve that the cops deserve to die. Yeah, in fact, that was the phrase that cops deserve to die. He said it was the campaign position of the Democratic Party. That was uh, a few months back. Well, I don't, I don't know if he said that or not, and there, there are elements of the Democratic Party that, by the way, do excuse uh, violence against police officers. So, but that's I, also not I'm an incitement to violence. You understand? There's that, that's not an incitement to violence. You understand that that's different. That's calling out others for inciting violence. You can understand well, that. You can understand that this, these are different things, right? Me saying that that that, that, jihad, that me saying that jihadists saying that uh, Israelis and Americans and their allies need to be killed that they're evil and bad. I'm not inciting violence. I'm pointing out those who are inciting violence, right? So if Russia is saying that that's yeah, part of the those, Democratic Party's platform, he's saying that they but, are inciting, uh, that, that that his statement is not, in fact, an incitement to anything. It is merely pointing out what is going on. And by the way, I'm not, I, I'm, I, I did not, I'm not conceding that he said that. I don't know that he said that. So I, you're coming at me with a quote from somebody else. I don't listen to other people's radio shows. You're, you're welcome to look it up, and I have another one. In fact, I could have, I could, Name a half a dozen. No, but you know, uh, said I'm only responsible for what I say, right? So I, I'm not going to sit here and no, have somebody. No, not, on the, not, no, 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 I'm not going to sit here I'm and not, have somebody on the show who's throwing random quotes that he says are attributed to people, and I get to play defense for other people. I don't know what the context is. I don't know what they're saying. So you either have a comment that you would like to make to me, or actually, we could just turn this around. Why do you like to play the what aboutism right now? Does it make you feel better to think that that both sides are equally rotten? Is is that what this is? That's the game that you want to play? I mean, explain to me where this comes from in your mind. I'd, I'd really like to know. Republicans are just as bad as Democrats. Do you believe that? Are the Republican mobs running around dressed all in black beating people up on campuses? Are the Republicans going around in large numbers saying that what do they want, dead cops? When do they want them now? Are the Republicans running oh, around I'm saying that? Did they ever run around and say that the previous? Did they ever run around and say the previous president of the United States was guilty of high treason against his country? And when I say people, I'm talking well, about the main editorial rooms. So are you going to let me have a point? Are you going to let me have a point? Yes or no? Barack Obama was accused by your side of being the Antichrist. My, what, what does my side? What does my side mean? I'm giving. I'm giving you actual. I'm giving you the the primary journals of news and opinion in the country, the New York Times, Washington Post. I'm giving you the biggest cable news channels except for Fox News, and you're pulling out random quotes from people somewhere saying, well, what about this guy who said this? I'm talking about a continuous campaign of coverage. But that's not even... 
why does it make you feel better? I mean, I think this is a fascinating situation. Why does it make you feel better to think that Democrats aren't actually creating a deeply hostile environment? Do you think that you'll make the problem better by saying that both sides do this, that everybody does this? Some of them are, and some Republicans are as well. No, it's not not equivalent. No, no. See, this is the game that the left also plays with terrorism. Oh, there's right-wing terrorism, too. That's a lie. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols killed hundreds of people. Oh my God! Do you, you really want you really want to go here and have a debate over terrorism? I worked in it's terrorism units, sir. Guess what? We were dealing with jihadists. We we weren't dealing with guys that were saying they wanted to overthrow the government. Sexton is a coward. He won't even let me get three words in. You're getting in tons of words. It happens on your side. No, but I think this is fascinating because your your mentality is exactly the problem. You have dead. You have dead. Uh, or rather, you have people that have been shot. And within 24 hours, you know, what did you think of the New York Times editorial talking about Gabby, Gabby Giffords being shot as a result of Sarah Palin? Do you, do you agree with that sentiment? I think that one's a stretch. I think oh, that that, a stretch. that's a stretch. Oh, I'm glad because I think that she's going to sue them for, for, sla- for libel. Um, but well, I, I just don't know why this makes you feel better, though. I'll bet you right now, I'll bet you $1,000 right now to the charity of winner's choice that Sarah Palin will not sue them for liable. And if she does, she'll lose. Well, that's irrelevant. I'm just saying that the point is that what was said was false. Oh, by the way, they retracted it, so it was false. There's no debate about this. The New York Times like, yeah, we shouldn't have said that. So you're not defending that. No one's defending that. That would be idiotic because it's clearly wrong. In my opinion, that one's a stretch. Not impossible, but a stretch. But but, but it's it's, it's your contention that right now the, the political climate has not been made more toxic than, say— Four years ago, you you, you don't are, think that's the case? Are, yeah, I think yeah, I think it's worse. And I think it was getting worse four years ago than it was four years prior to that. I think it's always getting worse. Well, it it may be that's, cyclical, that's but but so then why why is it wrong to take a moment in time and stop and say, hold on a second? Well, the Democrats have been saying, and what the main outlets of the Democratic Party have been putting forward about this president and those who support him is damaging. It's it's not just a there's, disagreement. No, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with with calling that out as a potential factor but you should have the courage to acknowledge how often it happens on your side as well no see you're you're and drawing a false this this, this this is where we this is where we have a problem you're drawing a false equivalency no, it's it's not it's not so as it's not the, the same problem. thing i mean you also were willing to say this about terrorism so clearly you have a problem with looking at matters of degree Right. I mean, you you look at terrorist uh, acts, both averted as well as terrorist acts in terms of total casualties over the last 20 years. It's not even close. But anyway, I've given you too much time as it is on my show. Uh, Let's go on to the next caller. Joe in San Francisco. I heard app. What's up? Buck, from one subhuman monster to another, shield tie. Yeah, shield tie, buddy. So. I do have a hilarious anecdote, if we've got time, about a conversation I had about guns with someone in San Francisco here. But the main reason for my call is that I would like to thank our Democrat colleagues for dispensing with all the civic, civil dialogue and unity nonsense and getting on with the important work of the nation, which is impeaching Donald Trump, stopping the Republicans from killing everybody and destroying the planet. And blaming Sarah Palin for all the uh, the political violence and the the level of our discourse in this country. Yeah, I mean, you've got so, you've got so-called serious columnists writing about how Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord is is an, is like an act of mass murder. I forget the exact verbiage, but it's something along those lines. That that seems to me to be not just a stretch, but that's that's a dangerous thing to say. Many many different comments along those lines. 
Um, so, you know, I'd like to invite you and the rest of your listeners and even John to spend, a, just take a moment and uh, of silence to observe the passing of the more civic dialogue because that's about as long as it lasted was one moment. <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't, there, there was no, there was no civility from the, uh, from the other side. There was just a pause so that they could get on the same uh, messaging sheet and they weren't really sure what it was going to be. Will it be guns this time? Will it be something else? Uh, w- will we try to do, I mean, the, the classic is what we just were, were just exposed to, uh, which is this, this happens on both sides. This is what this is now the, the the refuge of of the moral relativist and and the imbecile, which is oh well you know all, all religions have violence really Quakers have, there's as much violence in Quakerism as there is with in the uh, corridors of Islam and jihadism really that, that they're they're all the same huh all political ideologies you know have their flaws okay so communism uh, capitalism a republic a totalitarian dictatorship they've all got their flaws. You know, once once you have given up the right to make distinctions, once all of a sudden judgment is is just thrown out the window and, and we're going to claim that everything is the same, everyone can do things their way, everyone makes mistakes, and there's no point in making distinctions anymore, well, then we've lost, right? Th- th- then all of a sudden uh, we are just subject to the whims of whomever is in power. And I find it very troubling, uh, Joe, that there are so many people that would like to believe that what's going on, people say, oh, tr- uh, Obama and birtherism. Birtherism was, uh, for, first of all, you know, you look at what was going on with birtherism and the top uh, conservative journals of opinion were all like, this is, from the beginning, we're like, this is nonsense, okay, this is not real. And I know that, you know, Trump uh, dabbled in some birtherism for a little while. I wish he hadn't, um, but it wasn't. There's a difference between saying that that some they think that somebody's uh, birth certificate has been forged and somebody is guilty of high treason. I mean, th- th- these are not equivalent things. And there's also not an equivalence between the amount of people that are saying it and the way it's being said, as as it was in the Obama administration. And I mean, the the main news story for months now is Donald Trump Russia collusion. There is no collusion. Okay, I, I can I can stake whatever I can stake on it now for everybody listening. Donald Trump did not collude with Russia to throw the election. Full stop. The people that have been saying for but months that he another... go. I'm sorry, Joe. I'm just I'm I'm a little. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I understand. I understand. But Buck, another unnamed official with knowledge of the affair, said that there might be indications of something going on. But of course, at the end of the story, there's no no criminal activity observed. So. Come on, what's wrong with you? Get get with the program. I mean, open your eyes, open your eyes. There's always false equivalence, but the point is there is never equivalence. There's never equivalence. Have you got time for my hilarious anecdote about San Francisco? Make it quick because we got to run to a break, Joe. Go ahead. Okay, I got into a conversation about the lethal use of force by police with a, with a woman here. And in the course of the conversation, I said to her, have you ever fired a gun? And her response to me was, no, but I've thrown tomahawks. Maybe the hosts of The View have also thrown tomahawks. I kind of like to throw some tomahawks. That sounds like fun, actually. Thank you for calling in, Joe. Thank you, buddy. Shields High. You know, I I always remember uh, uh, Last of the Mohicans, which I thought, I think is an underrated movie. I think it's a great movie. Uh, Michael Mann directed it. Daniel Day-Lewis stars in it. Um, uh, I I think it's fantastic. Uh, But there are some really cool 
war clubs in that and and usage of tomahawks. Uh, good movie. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, 844-900-BUCK, uh, 844-900-2825. We're going to come back and have a calm discussion of a whole bunch of things, including the witch hunt against Trump, the uh, effort that's underway for the administration to get more apprenticeships going, what that would mean, and oh, so, oh, and also updates on the uh, American who was released from North Korea and what that tells us about that despotic and vile regime. Uh, we've got a lot more, team. Stay with me. The Senate has passed a bill that expands Russia sanctions speaking of Russia, and they've done it in a way that uh, the administration uh, would need congressional approval to lift existing sanctions. Here's the Wall Street Journal reported today. The U.S. Senate overwhelmingly passed a bill to expand sanctions on Moscow and wrest more control of Russian sanctions policy from the Trump administration, bucking criticism of the legislation from European allies, the State Department, and the Kremlin. The bipartisan bill, which passed in the Senate in a 98-2 vote, requires that the administration receive congressional approval to lift existing sanctions on Russia. It also broadens sanctions on Russia's energy sector, mandates punishment of malicious cyber actors, and crimps financing available to Russia's banking and energy sectors. The result is the strongest rebuke yet from U.S. lawmakers to Moscow over Russia's alleged interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. So we have been told all this time that Russia was so invested in getting Trump elected. And I mean, we've been told this by the media, although they're they're calming down on this just a bit. Um, we've been told this and uh, yet where is Russia seeing all these benefits from the Trump administration? Nothing so far, really. Uh, I, I think it's it's been very... Uh, illuminating that the previous administration was able to do all kinds of outreach to true rogue states, bad regimes, bad um, bad countries, Cuba, Iran, I mean bad governments, not, not the people there. Uh, and the media was always running interference for them. But we've been uh, treated to this very uh, consistent narrative of Trump wanting so much to work closely with the Russians, caring so much about the Russians, loving the Russians, wanting to, well, Putin specifically. And I just sometimes want to stop and ask, why why should we believe that? Nothing has happened yet that would make anyone think that the Russians are getting something good out of Trump. Um, but we just pass over this, right? I, I know this is the Senate that did this today, but I'm just saying, here's the Senate increasing sanctions. Um, and, uh, you know, we are punishing Russia for, in economic ways, for its meddling in our election. And the meddling, uh, I, I don't believe, did anything. And now we have set an interesting precedent, by the way, whereby if hackers in a country do something to another country that the other country doesn't like, there can be a response at the nation-state level, right? So if hackers in country A mess around with 
the government of country B, country B's government can punish country A's government. Um, and that's just, that can lead to some very uh, frightening places, I think. Um, it hasn't yet, but when cyber war threatens to turn into war war, uh, we need to be, we need to pay very close attention to what's going on. And that will happen at some point. There will be cyber incidents that turn into kinetic military incidents. Um, and it's just a matter of time. Bill in Mississippi on WJDX. Hey, Bill, what's going on? Hey, man. Oh, you know, I was born and raised here in Mississippi. I'm 66 years old. You know, what the Democrats don't want to tell you the truth about is they owned all the slaves. Uh, d- Democrats were the party of slavery. Yeah. Right. That's well, and yeah, that's, that's, that, that is just a matter of history. Right. And, uh, and, and the seg- and segregationists later on were, were Democrats, right? So. Right. And they, uh, they don't, they don't teach history past 1870. It was a Republican president that freed the slaves, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, well, the, the 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 repositioning of the Democrat Party as being as being almost first and foremost concerned with marginalized and minority groups at the top of its at the top of its agenda is fascinating, considering its history of being the primary political oppressor of those groups throughout the history of this country. Bill, thank you for for calling in. Uh, but yeah, this is not taught in this is not taught in schools. People always uh, they just rush past it. Um, they never. Uh, well, the the narrative that we hear about Russia and Trump, I mean, we're, we're told false narratives in this country um, by the by the left all the time. Isn't it interesting? You can't. Speaking of false equivalency, where are the stories about uh, that are, that are told that are favorable for conservatives? Where are those in the school system and on college campuses that prove to be false later on? You know, where are those uh, those long running narratives? that make Republicans or make conservatism in America look great. And then it turns out that, you know, that's actually just, that's actually just been a, been a lie the whole time. It, it only goes in one direction. Um, so uh, we're going to, I want to, I got to talk to you a bit about the uh, latest in the special counsel probe and uh, want to hear your thoughts on everything that's going on in the last 24 hours, 844-900-BUCK. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. I've been saying for a while, team, that the transition from a central narrative in the media of collusion to obstruction uh, would occur and we would be... Um, in a position where we're supposed to just forget about everything that's happened before this. Uh, we're supposed to just pretend that we haven't been told all this time. I mean, n- now I, I think that there's some clarity. Y- you know you know when you're in a relationship? I mean, let's step back for a second here. You can't necessarily see the problems. I, I have, in my day, um, definitely saved a few relationships for other people. Um, I think I saved a marriage at one point with my advice, if I may say so. So I, I have definitely uh, helped people. 
because it's easier. Sorry, I have definitely helped people. I'm not part. Pardon me for the the moment of you know yay buck, but I just mean that it's easier to see the situation from the outside and to be objective about it. Right. And this is also uh, why people see a therapist and they'll talk about the situations. Um, but when you see your friends in a relationship, a friend of yours in a relationship that's or a family member that's not healthy, not good, you're oftentimes left in a position where you think, why can't they see this for what it is? Uh, and of course, it's because when you're in it and you're invested and your judgment is clouded and all of that. Uh, I think that we're seeing more people now, perhaps, that are oh, that are falling away from the core of the Russia collusion narrative and see it now for, at least with regard to Donald Trump, how crazy that is. I think that Jeff Sessions was a really important part of this whole process too. Meaning they're asking Jeff Sessions questions about talking to Russians. It's like, do you, do you guys really think, does anyone really think that Jeff Sessions had some plot with the Russians to hack into, e I mean, think of the liability, uh, the complete, betrayal of everything that that guy stood for his whole life. I mean, and for what? Perfectly happy being a senator. I mean, it's just, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up, right? The motivation, as I've said to you many times, is not there. And I, I think now we're starting to see this. And the media is aware of this as well, right? Now the, uh, now that some of the fog has lifted here and we can see more clearly what's going on, there's an understanding that, oh, okay, uh, yeah, Trump did not have some shady meetings with Russians where he was trying to throw the election or whatever, hack the election, whichever term or uh, phrase they like to use. And so what we've seen, of course, is the switch that I knew would, I knew was going to happen. I said it to you weeks ago, and, and here we are, from collusion to obstruction. And I just want to play, th th this, is, this will give you a, a sense of where we've gone from January to today from the various uh, media outlets out there. Here's how it's been. The president is dealing with this very profoundly important issue, obstruction of justice, potential collusion with the Russians. In FBI is conducting a criminal investigation into potential collusion between Donald Trump's campaign and the Russian government. Possible collusion or coordination with Trump officials. We're finding out more and more about the possible collusion. It looks a lot like there was collusion. Not just to investigate Trump-Russia collusion. Uh, there's probable cause to believe that there was cooperation. What kind of collusion, if any, there was? Serious allegations that have been made that there was collusion, evidence of collusion. A in collusion with the Russians. Collusion, uh, that's what is being investigated. Uh, you think is on its face obstruction of justice by the President of the United States? Wait. Yes. Obstruction Wait, of justice. Pause, pause. So, so that was all, you yeah, Bernie Sanders, everyone's getting on it, right? Collusion. Collusion. There's collusion, I'm telling you. He was colluding. Uh, they're all talking about collusion. And just the, just the repetition of it, right? The, the constant restatement of even the hypothetical creates a perception in the listener that there must be something there. How can someone talk so much about uh, by the way, such a major issue, right? A collusion through a presidential election. How could someone have that discussion um, if, in fact, uh, that wasn't there? Wasn't something to it, right? Just the um, the 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 frenzy creates its own level of believability because there are so many different people saying it. There must be something to it because all of those individuals 
are on the same basic sheet of music, clearly there has to be something there, right? That that's the way that the mind works. It's it's understandable that that's why. But you know, this is this is how the, uh, there are multi-billion-dollar businesses built on this concept, my friends. You know, it's you may not think that you care about watching that paper towel commercial in between, you know, football game or whatever, but you watch enough and guess what? You're in the store and that's the paper towel you're reaching for. Same with collusion narrative. So that was what it was for, for quite a while. And I'm not saying they've completely abandoned it, but now here's a sense of, of where it's gone. Oh, now we're going to hear a lot more about obstruction. Any possible obstruction case? Whether it's obstruction or justice, we now have the obstruction of justice concerns. Uh, I think he has laid out the core elements of a an obstruction of justice charge. When it comes to something like obstruction, there's a serious legal standard. That is obstruction of justice. Fits the behavior of obstruction. Look at the law with respect to obstruction of justice. But the behavior is obstruction. In order to get to the bottom of the obstruction charge, that points towards obstruction of justice. All right, Those you get the idea. The and a hat tip and thanks to the Washington Free Beacon for pulling together that uh, montage of, uh, of audio clips. Um, yeah, this is where we are now. Now the whole investigation. Think about what this means, though. I know that they're going to talk about a Russia collusion investigation and we need a full accounting of the hacking of the election. And this is about American democracy and this is so important and it's essential. But really, they're looking for a process crime here. They're looking for obstruction. And you have uh, CNN analyst uh, Jeffrey Tubin, who is already already crowing about this one. it's a huge deal, and I don't hate to tell you that I told you so. I mean, when you uh, listen to James Comey's testimony about how the president tried to get him to drop the investigation, and then you see that he fired Comey when he didn't drop the investigation, that is evidence of obstruction of justice. Oh, yes. Brought to you by the, uh, by the people who are defenders of what is the meaning of the word is. That depends on the meaning of the word is. Bill Clinton, you will recall, under oath, playing all kinds of word games. Um, uh, Trump did not give an order. If if saying, I hope you can see your way past this, in, in passing to somebody, is now a direct order that you can be held criminally liable for, we are all in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I, I can't, you, you think about this in, in your own life, you know, language that people use I, I mentioned the you know oh, i could just oh, i could just you know oh that guy i could just kill him uh if, you, if you're saying that out of frustration you're talking about like you know your brother because he just spilled milk all over the floor no one actually thinks you're trying to kill somebody right and and, and you shouldn't be held legally responsible for a threat against somebody's life uh the the context and the Intent clearly matters. Oh, intent, like with like with Hillary, remember? Intent matters. Um, but people are going to see in this what they want to see. And I'm not going to sit here and 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 pretend that this is open and shut for for Trump now that this is going forward. Obviously, there's real legal jeopardy here. You have uh Ken Starr, who was the independent counsel in the Clinton Lewinsky investigation. Kenneth Starr, you remember him. Uh, here's what he had to say about the obstruction of justice charge recently. Except- 
Obstruction of justice is really a very hard crime to make out. It, it's not just you want the investigation to go away, you suggest that the investigation goes away. You've got to take really affirmative action. Uh, and Director Comey said in his testimony that even though the expression was hope, he took it as a directive. But what we know is he didn't do anything about it, right? That is, he did not dismiss the investigation or curtail the investigation. There's an expression of, of, of hope. So it becomes an interpretation. Mm. Uh, and I think it's just a very hard case to make out. And, you know, that's a good thing for all of us. Crimes should be difficult to prove. That is one of the most important things I've heard in a long time. We are forgetting that. We're being made to forget that in this country. Crime should be a, a difficult thing to prove. If you're going to prosecute someone, uh, take away their freedom, destroy their reputation, and, and with it, their life, you better be darn sure. I completely agree with the sentiment that, you know, better a uh, hundred guilty people go free than one innocent person languish in prison. I mean, I, I am uh, very concerned with this mentality we have now whereby... You know, it's, it's the, the Martha Stewart effect or, or, or the Scooter Libby effect. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a crime and, and it's not clear that you wanted to commit a crime and it's not clear that you did anything wrong and it's not clear that any harm happened. But like, let's just get you. Let's do Let's do a little dance in front of the jury and make this happen. Let, let's find a way to convince people because of the authority that they view in, in, in the state and in a prosecutor. And it all seems very official. And if the prosecutor says so, must be so. Um, but, and by the way, notice those, notice those cases. I mean, one of them was Patrick Fitzgerald was the, uh, attorney, um, for the, uh, le- leak investigation, the, the leak that was not a leak, by the way, or, or, or the leak that was not a, cri- the criminal, the leak was not criminal, but they investigated it anyway. And then they tried to get Scooter Libby and they did, and they prosecuted him and they convicted him of, of lying under oath. Um, so about not leaking. That was what they got Scooter Libby for. Uh, and then he had a sentence commuted. He should have been pardoned by Bush, and it is to Bush's, it is to Bush's shame that he did not do that, in, in my estimation. Uh, Scooter, Libby, abs- uh, Scooter Libby absolutely should have been, Lewis Libby, uh, should have been pardoned in that. That was just a fiasco. That was just political payback for the Iraq War and the media, and the Bush administration was beaten down. And the Martha Stewart thing, I mean... Well, she went to prison for six months for what? That was Comey, but he made, remember, Comey appointed Fitzgerald, so Comey's hand was behind that. But uh, Comey was directly involved in the Martha Stewart prosecution. And, you you know, for what? By the way, I I love this. Uh, You had uh, Camille Paglia writing in an interview with the Week, or saying in an interview with the Weekly Standard that, quote, Comey is an effete charlatan. And he should have been fired within 48 hours of either Hillary or Trump taking office. I know she's a, she's like a pro-socialist Bernie Sanders supporter, everything, but she she says some great stuff. This interview is really fantastic, by the way. Uh, she really nails it on a whole bunch of issues. So, um, but th- this is that that point that Ken Starman, you, you better be darn sure about a crime. I mean, it's not just tie goes to the defendant. It, it should be if there is any look. The standard is reasonable doubt, right? Or beyond a reasonable doubt. So is it beyond a reasonable doubt that saying, I hope you can see your way past this, is a criminal intent to, uh, uh, is criminal intent to order the end of an investigation? Of course not. But, you know, can you construe it in some way? Can, can you find some 
intellectual mental gymnastics can you twist into a pretzel and say, yeah, well, you know, that's a hope and he's the president and a hope is kind of like an order. Sure. But as I said before, I, I, I don't want to live in a country where an offhand comment that has no effect, no impact and was not intended to have either of those things and was said with without mens rea, which is why I asked Senator Rand Paul about this, a criminal state of mind. This really does matter. And, and that's why I get a little tense with people, or, or not with people, but tense with the argument that, oh, Hillary, it didn't matter that she didn't have criminal intent. It didn't matter because she was reckless. If it had been one or two or three emails even, you know, you make a case that there was no intent and, you know, that, that should factor into over 100. I mean, you're, you just don't care, right? Re- recklessnesses or negligence, the same, same idea, same basic concept. But you need to have one of those things to be a criminal, right? You can't be acting in a way that a normal person under those circumstances might be acting without thinking they're doing anything wrong. Um, and and it, should be, it should be hard to prove a crime. It, you should not be finding ways, uh, finding ways to turn people into criminals. And I, I just find the current circumstance of fighting out a, a political, fighting a, a political battle through criminal proceedings is very troubling. And, you know, I, I, I told them that they shouldn't do the special prosecutor or the special counsel thing. I mean, when I say told them, I've been saying this um, because the uh, Fitzgerald investigation with Scooter Libby and, you know, Carl Rove wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, that was just a travesty. Uh, that was just, you know, uh, it was so clear what was going on there. And that's going to happen again. They're, they're going to get someone. They're going to find some... Trump associate, some person who is just caught up in it. And I know you say, oh, book, well, you know, we lie under oath. I mean, you got to go to prison for that. Yeah. How many hours of interrogation do most people think they would manage with the FBI, ask them questions before they might, they might just shade the truth just a little bit. They might just, I don't really want to admit that for the record. And then they've got you and they know, you know, they can ask you whatever questions they want. And this is why my, you know, friends of mine who are uh, they're playing the music. I got to stop. But friends of mine who are like former FBI will tell you, don't talk to the FBI <laughs> ever. Don't talk to them. Lawyer present only. Do not discuss. Do not have a conversation. Do not you know try to get yourself out of it uh, because it, it does not it does not work to your favor. All right, all right. I, I know I got to get into a break here. Eight four four nine hundred buck. Everybody, I promise we will switch up topics. We got a lot more coming. Stay with me. Evelyn in North Carolina, WPTI. What have you got? Hi, Buck. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm all right, thank you. I'm, uh, you know, I'm all right. I'm a little, I'm, am, I, am I being grouchy today? I hope I'm not being grouchy, Evelyn. No, you're not. I listen to you every night. Thank you. But let me, uh, you know, these callers that you had, especially the argumentative one about maybe an hour or so ago, mm-hmm. I attribute them to uninformed voters who are listening to biased media and taking it as the truth. And then they believe all this stuff instead of really trying to become more informed. Now, the thing is, um, I I just don't know. I don't know if anything's ever going to happen, but I think that they're so riled up 
and they're so into this, uh, you know, um, impeachment of our president. The Democrats and left wings are left wingers are trying to just distract him from putting on his agenda and getting nothing done, so that he could they could say he's a failure, which is so wrong. And now the other thing is, I just heard today um, that they were trying to either put forth um, a law or they're just trying to prove that. Uh, President Trump has uh, taken money from the Russians. Well, what about Hillary Clinton selling 20% of our uh, uranium to Russia and getting all these... Bill got a a check from the Russians for $500,000 from a Russian state bank when that happened for a speech, so... Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I know, but 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 corruption that that affects Democrats, Evelyn, that's the good kind of corruption, you know. That's the that's what keeps us safe and warm at night. I'm so tired of this one-sided stuff and our uninformed voters better know what's happening and and get more educated about this whole uh scam and this whole system because they're not thinking that for every freedom you lose. And, you know, these left-wingers want to take away many of our freedoms into a socialistic uh, type of government. That every freebie or entitlement they get, they're giving up a freedom. And they better realize it before it's too late. I agree. Ellen, by the way, are you originally from the Northeast? Yeah, I, I'm from upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. There, I thought I thought you might be a fellow New Yorker. I I, I could pick up some some New York there. Evelyn, great to have you call in. Shields high. Thank you so much. Um, uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we are going to talk about, I know, see, we're not just going to go Trump, Russia, collusion, blah, blah, blah. Trump is great, whatever. Um, I want to talk to you about this uh, plan for apprenticeships, which I think is is interesting. Uh, that's a, a constructive thing that we can talk about. And the way that labor is changing and internships and how people get jobs. And I, I don't know. I find all that stuff very interesting. And I think about it a lot. So we'll talk about apprenticeships from the guy who is famous for having a show called The Apprentice. Well, we've got that and more coming up. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. We're here today to celebrate the dignity of work. It's really a good term, dignity of work, and the greatness of the American worker, which I've been celebrating for a long time. Probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for the American worker. And the American worker sees what's happening in Michigan and in Ohio and in a lot of places that we've had a huge impact on just in a short period of time. We have a lot of companies moving in. A lot of plants are going to be built. A lot of plants are being expanded. And big ones are going to be announced very soon. We're going to hear some very big names that I can't tell you about now. We want to get them signed on the dotted line. We don't want to talk too quickly. It's called sign them on the dotted line, right? In just a few moments, I'll be signing an executive order to expand apprenticeships and vocational training 
to help all Americans find a rewarding career, earn a great living, and support themselves and their families, and love going to work in the morning. This is an essential conversation uh, to be having in this country right now. It's a major area of policy that I think doesn't get nearly enough attention. How, how do you get the job, the kind of job you want? Uh, what kind of training do you need? Um, the four-year college degree as a panacea, as the, as the cure-all uh, for the, well, for getting a job, right? I mean, that's, that I think people have realized is not sufficient. That's not going to do it. There's a trillion-dollar student loan uh, debt bubble out there right now. People have taken on uh, too much debt in order to get degrees that in many cases are not worth what they thought they would be. This is a, a pretty straightforward supply and demand issue. If 60% of the population is getting, and I'm, I'm making up these numbers, by the way, I don't know off the top of my head, but if 60% of the population is getting a four-year degree uh, now, but 50% of the population or 40% was getting a degree four-year degree 10 years ago, you know, it's it's not worth as much now, right? Because there are more people with it. Um, and we do have uh, record numbers of uh, undergraduate degrees now. And look, that's not to say people shouldn't go to college. I went to college. I, I think that in many cases, and, and perhaps even most cases, it's, it's the best avenue. But what about different uh, versions of college? What about different programs? What about adding uh, training into the college experience that would allow you to go do a job on day one. Now, this is where apprenticeships versus uh, internships come to mind. I, I don't know how it happened this way, but for for a while, it was all the rage. I know people still do it, but these unpaid internships at these companies, and I did a number of them, uh, unpaid internships have become some rite of passage, and uh, for a lot of people, in, at least in corporate America, and I, I just think it's a lot of the time it's it's a waste of time and it's exploitative and people they you know look I know it depends right some internships they have a really established program and everything but a lot of places use it for free clerical labor that's just the truth I'm, I'm sure there are fantastic you know there are fantastic internships I, I did a couple of internships at think tanks but they paid and when you're a paid intern you're paid so it wasn't a lot of money but they were giving you you know it was money to me. It mattered, uh, and, and it made me feel like my work was valued, and it also was reflected, I think, in in the care and uh, effort I put into things. But I am still amazed that to this day I, I never uh, was even offered a class in in basic finance, or if you live in certain parts of New York City, finance. Uh, I've I've never been taught any of those skills. Uh, I was never even given the opportunity to learn an applicable professional skill uh, other than, you know, math, science, a basic liberal arts education, which I do think is important and has it certainly has a very uh, has paid some dividends. I'm I'm one of those rare, rare dudes who majored in political science and actually works in politics in some capacity doing political commentary. So there you go. Who would have thought political science degree that was actually useful? Um, never mind my time working for the government itself. Uh, so apprenticeships are what the president is looking at expanding now. And these are usually programs where somebody works at a company and they get on the job training and they make some money and then they're a great fit for the job later. And maybe you're in school while you're doing it, or maybe you're just doing the apprenticeship. 
but I think this is a much better a much better model. Uh, the executive order, by the way, that Trump signed today will uh, double the amount of money that's out there for apprenticeship programs. It's at about ninety million dollars a year now. It's going to go to two hundred million dollars a year. Um, but the president, his critics are pointing out that he's going to try to impose based on his budget, which is, a, again, a policy wish list, not actually a budget that's going to go through. But he wanted to cut a 36 percent cut to Labor Department job training programs. Uh, I don't know how successful those Labor Department job training programs are. My guess is that they are not particularly successful. Otherwise, Trump wouldn't want to cut them. Um I'm sure there's a lot of, of waste and probably very, there's, they're very ineffective. But apprenticeships, I think, are a good, um, a, a good approach to how people can get jobs in the future. And also retraining. One of the hardest things, as we look at the employment numbers right now, we keep seeing that there's a, a large number of people that are out of the workforce that are of working age, which is a very concerning figure. I know that when it was you know, Obama in office, of course, all of his supporters were pointing at the unemployment rate. And there's still some of that going on now with Trump. The unemployment rate is, is what, sub 5%. I mean, it's incredibly low. Um, but the way that they gauge unemployment is not really a, a great way of estimating the health of the, the health of the uh, certainly healthy, the overall economy, but also the ease with which one can get a job commensurate with one's skill set right now and and pay uh, that is what one is looking for. Uh, That's becoming harder. That's becoming uh, more difficult, I think, in a lot of ways. We're also seeing technology transition out a lot of jobs. I know a lot of you are kind of like, well, Buck, that's a pretty niche market, Um, and it is, but it's obviously very highly highly paid. Uh, You're seeing Wall Street financial services are now starting to suffer more from... Originally, it was just brokers, right? You could get an E-Trade account, and therefore, you don't have to pay a broker to do the transaction for you anymore on Wall Street. Um, but now, even act, what they call active management, where you pay somebody to help you make investments, uh, that is being replaced increasingly by algorithms. So you just have a mathematical algorithm that makes changes based on where the market's going, and it tries to uh, get the maximum return for you. So, and you think of how many people make a living in financial services and a very handsome living at that. And, you know, this is, we are entering decades here where you're going to see whole industries that are more or less eliminated or or change so dramatically that the skill set that was useful today won't be there or won't be uh, what you use in a matter of of a few years. I don't know exactly how long just yet, but uh, apprenticeship programs are, I think, a good way, a good way to try something new. Uh, a Commerce Department report, according to the Wall Street Journal, found that apprenticeships cost companies between $25,000 and $250,000 a year. Uh, but the return on the investment is strong for employers because graduates of apprenticeship programs have less turnover. So there's an upfront cost, to be sure, and companies bear those costs. But then uh, they have employees that fit the job role well, and they have people in place uh, who know exactly what they're doing from day one once they're brought on in a full-time capacity. You know, I'm an advocate for rethinking a lot of how our current structure, the, the way it's supposed to go now, and I know some of you in parts of the country where there's a lot of homeschooling and things are a little different, but the, the way it goes now, at least in the coastal elite places where, you know, everyone's drinking beetroot and matcha, I think it's beetroot matcha is what they, is that, a, is that the, yeah, I think it's beetroot matcha. 
or just green tea matcha I know is a thing, also latte. But I think beetroot matcha latte is a thing now as well. Uh, is you're supposed to go to school, um, obviously grammar school or primary school. I don't know what the difference is. I think people just use this, the terms interchangeably. And then high school and then a four-year college. And then for certain fields, you need an advanced degree on top of that. I think we should, uh, first of all, I'm always encouraging people at a younger age to work for a wage. Uh, see what it is to do a job to have to show up at a place and have responsibilities and take orders and then get money afterwards and then see what that see how far that money goes. And you have a new appreciation for it. I know I sound like some, you know, oh, you know, kids these days, but I, I wish I had. I mean, I tutored in high school to make money. I did some of these things, but um, I wish I had done more of that. And I wish I had started financial planning at about 18 and, and had some training in this. I had, I had no idea, none at all. I mean, would I have gone to be a welder? No. And my friends would laugh right now because I'm not particularly good with my, you know, with technology or with building things. Um, but would I have liked to have had opportunities perhaps along the way, not just to uh, read, you know, Shakespeare and, and uh, Milton and Dante and uh, you know, learn whatever level of math I learned, which was not very high, uh, but also to have gotten some trade skills. I think that would have been an, an option that I would have liked to have had, especially around uh, college age. But this this needs a new thinking. It needs new money. It needs a new approach because right now people are just, you know, we're, we're all hanging on to the jobs we're in and we realize that switching is very difficult. You're going to take a pay cut usually. It's an uncertain job market out there. But staying in a job in an industry that's slowly fading away, if not outright dying, is also a, creates its own anxieties. And you, that's and people talk about wages not rising, and and this ties into Trumpism. I think this is what Trump speaks to. He he sees this. I mean, yeah, he's a billionaire and he's a famous TV guy and he inherited a lot of money, and I get all that. But he does have a level of interaction. I, I tell you this, and it's some, something we should all keep in mind. Donald Trump has had a lot more meaningful interaction with uh, people who, in a professional setting, not in a like, oh, I'm going to hear you out because I'm a politician setting. He's had a lot more uh, of, a, of interaction with people who make a living with their hands, who make a living by the hour, and who are uh, working very hard under difficult conditions and sometimes dangerous conditions than... Uh, you know, a, a lot of these politicians, all these Democrats I see, they're talking a big game about social justice and, you know, Elizabeth Warren's of the world. Oh, does Elizabeth Warren really spend a lot of time around blue collar workers at, at Harvard Law School? And, you know, I mean, give me a break. Um, anyway, so I, I think the apprenticeship uh, executive order is the start of a conversation. It's not going to change the world. It's not going to change American, the American economy all that much, but it's it's moving in the right direction. I think people should probably also work for a year or two before they go to college. And that should be standard. Now, they do expect that for some graduate programs now. Like before you get an MBA, they usually want you to have worked for, I think, three to five years is the sweet spot. Three or four years is where they usually get people. Um, that's, a, that's a better model than, than what we currently have with just people run off into college right away and then run off into grad school right away. Um, I actually saw last night a, a, someone who I've become friendly with who has, I think, two advanced degrees and is, and it's a completely honorable profession, it's fine, but is working as a, as a bartender slash barista. Two advanced degrees, though, paying those off. That's not, uh, not easy to do. Uh, so apprenticeships, the workplace, 
labor, getting paid for your time. These are all concepts that we need to revisit because unfortunately, you know, not, not everybody can be an Instagram star and just get like a $5,000 a post, you know, uh, not, not everybody, uh, not everybody can write the next great American novel. All right, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back team. Stay. We'll take some calls. Stay with me. Tim in Wisconsin on the line. What's up, Tim? Long time no talk. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Hey, not too bad. Um, I was just going to comment. You were talking about uh, kids uh, working before they go to college, and I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, not having that real-life work experience and earning money, you have no idea what you want to do at 18. I mean, I sure didn't when I went to college. Yeah, if if I had had to show up for not you know nine to five somewhere, get a paycheck for a year or two before somebody then told me, okay, you don't have to do that anymore. Now we're going to send you away with you know to a to a co-ed environment for four years, where all you have to do is learn about stuff that you want to learn about and hang out with people your own age. I mean, I would have I would have appreciated it even more. I mean, I had a good college experience, but I would have appreciated it even more. And honestly, I, I would have applied myself, I think, even more than I did. Well, I, yeah, exactly. And I think I think a lot of people probably would maybe stop going into some of those fields where there's no job available for them when they get out of school, you know, having had to have a real job and see what's out there. Yeah, I mean, this is, pe- people are convinced that you're, you know, why do you major in something? Well, a major is supposed to be a specialization, if your major is in something that you have no intention of using when you graduate, why are you, you know, we kind of get into this, you know, at what point does your course of study is it self-indulgent? You know what I mean, Tim? Yeah, I mean, you tell me, how many people do you know that they have a degree in something and they're working in a field completely? I mean, I went to a liberal arts college, so most people I know who had, you know, they got degrees <laughs> in like, they got degrees in women's and gender studies and sociology and anthropology and you know, I don't know a lot of anthropologists. I'll tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, yeah, thanks, right. thanks for calling in, Tim Shields. Hi, Mac in Texas. What's up, Mac? Shields, hi, Buck. Shields, hi, Mac. Uh, a couple of things. I've been listening to you on the phone while on hold, and it's something you might want to look into. The Government Accountability Office has admitted that they do not track the effectiveness of either Pell grants or student loans. In other words, how many of these things are actually leading to getting a degree? And they don't track that stuff, so they have no idea what the effectiveness is. In fact, I had a friend whose college roommate used her Pell Grant money for breast augmentation surgery. But that is not why I wanted to call. I wanted to, to, yeah, this is something you need to look into. But I, uh, I do want you to, to, to speculate uh, on the air, if you don't mind, about if, if there really was a crime of collusion or interference in our election, where is the scene of the crime? Well, the only scene of the crime that we know of is the Democrat National Committee. And so why can't Congress subpoena the servers from the Democrat National Committee to then examine them and find out what exactly happened, if anything? I think that's an excellent. I think that's an excellent question and a, and a very, a very good point. Uh, this all right now we're all relying on 
analysis from the intelligence community that was made public before the election as the the be all and end all here uh, about Russia intrusion or Russian, you know, not collusion, but Russian intrusion into the election. Um, I, I think that we should we should have a public accounting of, of what happened there. And I know it's complicated and there's probably a lot of techni- technical stuff involved that someone like me would not understand. But well, then make us understand it, you know, but I, I'm with you, Mac. There needs to be a lot more transparency about what went on here, uh, because that would answer a lot of the questions. And I think it would quell a lot of the accusations. And and hey, it might even get people to be a little more civil to one another in political discourse if we had facts to work with instead of just supposition all the time. Um, but Mac, thank you very much for uh, for calling in and uh, raising a very interesting point. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know what's on those servers for sure. I think that's uh, well worth it. Um, next hour, planning to talk to you about a new treatment for PTSD that is just getting underway that I think is uh, really interesting. And uh, also going to bring you... Uh, Bring you up to speed with the latest on Hillary Clinton, what she's been saying. She compares herself to Wonder Woman. You're going to want to hang out for that. And also Facebook is trying to uh, get extremism off of people's pages. That's going to lead to some unintended consequences. I've got a lot more. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Pleased to see that the uh, congressional baseball game, uh, charity game, is underway. And there uh, were some signs of unity on the field. I believe they uh, knelt in prayer at uh, second base, from what I see here. Um, And so that's good. I'm glad that there is a a coming together that's occurring uh, in that way between uh, members of Congress. And uh, I'm still just thinking and going to be looking for more updates on uh, whether or not, um, well, whether we have any updates on uh, Representative Scalise, I think uh, we need to be taking a, we'll take a look at that over the course of the next hour or so and make sure we see what's going on there. We're, we're praying for him and, and hoping that he pulls through and makes a, a full and total recovery. So our thoughts and prayers are with him. Now I have to turn to a guest. It's a very important issue and an interesting question. Uh, PTSD and can a single injection conquer post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, this is something the military's looking into, and we have somebody who can tell us quite a bit about it right now. We're joined by Christine Ray Olmsted. She's a research epidemiologist at RTI International, which is a nonprofit research organization the Army has hired to conduct a new study into a single shot that could cure PTSD. Christine, I, I know you have 15 years of research uh, experience involving the military focus on mental health, and you're co-principal investigator of this, so hard to find a better person to discuss this. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. All right. So in, in the simplest terms possible, please walk us through how a single shot could help conquer post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, well, the, the correct answer is we don't know. 
we don't know whether it works. There's very strong anecdotal evidence indicating that it does. However, the study that we're conducting is geared towards showing just that. So we're hopeful. And what would be the what, what's the mechanism here? I know that it, it involves a stellate ganglion block. What, what is that and what has it been used for in the past? It's an injection of a short-acting local anesthetic. So a lot of people think about something like Novocaine at the dentist. The actual medication is called Ropivacaine, and it's injected um, in the the right side of the neck into what's called the stellate ganglion, which you mentioned. The stellate ganglion is sort of a switching center, if you will, for the fight-or-flight portion of the nervous system. So the current thinking is that somehow the anesthetic briefly resets that portion of the nervous system even long after the six to eight hours uh, after the injection when the um, medication has worn off. So in recent years, there have been some doctors in the military who have been have been using this to try and treat PTSD. So we, we know it's a, it's a safe, I mean, these ganglion, uh, stellate ganglion block shots are safe. They, as you said, they're used for other things, but they've been using them with uh, Navy SEALs, Army Green Berets, people from the special operations community, because the shots can interrupt the fight or flight response. How does that work? Or how could it work? They, there, are, there are a lot of hypotheses, and I'm not a physician, so I'm not able to comment on that. Um, you're absolutely correct, though. The the inter- excuse me, the interruption of the fight or flight response is temporary, and the idea, the current thinking, is that it allows the sympathetic nervous system to reset itself to take care of some of the physiological PTSD symptoms like sweating and anxiety and some of some of those things. And there's been some early clinical experience with this. What, what, have, what have been the early results that you've been able to see from trying to use a, a shot to help treat PTSD? We haven't analyzed our data yet, but I can tell you from the anecdotal evidence published in the literature as well as conversations with my Army colleagues, there is very strong anecdotal evidence to suggest that the treatment is effective. Now, what that means is that there haven't been any control groups to date. So all that have been examined are people who have gotten the shot. There haven't been any uh, research studies where there was a control group. And placebo effect is a tremendous issue with this sort of a treatment. So it's important for the studies like this to go forward. And uh, currently, what what are the numbers when we're talking about veterans who are suffering from PTSD, do we have a sense of the, the percentage of, of those who are, and uh, the diagnoses, uh, overall numbers? How widespread a problem is post-traumatic stress disorder? It's, it's pretty significant, Buck. Um, an estimated 20% of active duty service members at any given time have PTSD. In the general population, the estimate is that 9% of people will experience PTSD by the age of 75. So it's quite prevalent, um, and, and it's a problem that everybody's quite concerned about, and rightfully so. Do you feel like, uh, or, or can you comment on whether Congress is uh, paying enough attention to that specifically as an issue with regard to funding for research and appropriations? 
It's an excellent question. I'm a researcher, so I will always argue for more funding. Um, they are acutely aware of it, and there is a tremendous amount of money that has been earmarked toward PTSD and other um, health issues in active duty service members, but I would always argue that more would be better. All right. Christine Ray Olmsted, she's a research epidemiologist at RTI International. Christine, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate it. Much appreciated, Buck. This would be uh, really uh, quite a quite a breakthrough, assuming that this is um, proven to be a treatment that is it, it is it would be a layered treatment or or a staged treatment, as I understand it, having read a bit about it. Um, so what it, what it does is it can get past that initial um, the hypervigilance and, and anxiety and the the symptomat uh, the symptoms of uh, of post traumatic stress disorder and quiet them for a long enough period that the more traditional methods of dealing with uh, mental mental health uh, issues like uh, SSRIs, uh, selective, ser uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, and also uh, different uh, talk therapy methods, cognitive therapy is often what it's referred to, that those can be uh, more effective because it's like calming down. It's it's almost like, uh, as I see it, and look, I'm not an expert, but I was reading about it. It's like they want to uh, stop the, the the trauma in the brain long enough to really try and patch it up. But it's almost like stopping the bleeding in a sense. It's stopping the um, the acute phase of the symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder, and then allowing for other for the additional treatments to be more successful. At least that's what I was seeing here. Uh, in this piece, uh, you know, the, the mind is is a, is fascinating, and uh, the combination or the uh, connection between mental health and physical health, I think, is also. And this is now a bit of a digression from the specific talk about PTSD. And and, and as many of you know, post traumatic stress disorder is uh, most associated in the public uh, in the public consciousness with the military because of the extreme circumstances members of the military find themselves in when they are serving. Um, but you can suffer PTSD from a terrible car accident or any, any number of traumas. Uh, and, and trauma leaves its mark on the brain in ways that uh, increasingly they're, they're able to uh, map this out. And they can see that, that this is uh, that the way that the neurotransmitters are interacting with each other, these are biochemical processes, which uh, is is good for people to know and, and to hear more about because the more that uh, mental health issues are really understood by the public as, in fact, a, a health issue, uh, meaning that it's not, oh, feel better, oh, just you, you should be in a better mood, you should... Uh, you should just be able to handle this. The more people understand that that that's similar when you're talking about certain uh, kinds of, of mental health issues. Uh, if you're dealing with somebody who has uh, bipolarity or um, obsessive compulsive disorder, telling them to just let it go would be similar in a sense to telling somebody who is sitting there and, and uh, you know, coughing terribly because their, their lungs have fluid in them because they have, you know, pneumonia. Well, you know, don't stop, stop coughing. Um, it's, it's not helpful because it is based on a bio, uh, a biochemical process. Uh, and, and all the evidence is pointing more and more in this direction, which I think 
is encouraging because then the public recognizes mental health as as a health issue and not just. Yeah, I mean, you look at the way that mental health issues were uh, pushed underground and, and swept under the rug and pushed aside even in until recent decades. Um, and what you see, and I, I see this among even my peer group, is that, that you can either choose to uh, tackle these issues in a constructive, medically sound way, or you can try to hide from them. The problem with mental health issues is when you, if you try to hide or you try to mask them, which is uh, very common as well. And I have to say that in, in my experience of friends and, and including those uh, who have served and just those who have mental health issues who have never been anywhere near the military, um, it, it is common for people to mask with alcohol. That's that's one of the most common ways that it is done uh, because it's really anesthetizing the pain and the anxiety of having the mental health issue to to grapple with and so anytime I see something like this where they're experimenting with a new therapy that can really help people because she, she mentioned the general population close to 10% will have PTSD and it's whatever it is officially in the military, my guess would be it's probably even a little higher uh, than that in re- reality just because it's prob- it's most likely underdiagnosed uh, as most mental health issues are. Uh, whatever they can do to uh, to help people and get them back to feeling feeling good um, because the mind-body connection, like I'm not a doctor, but I'm somebody who spends a lot of time trying to learn about uh, health and wellness. And the mind-body connection is getting stronger every year. Meaning the, the more research you see, the more there's a recognition that mental health and all of the other physical processes that are going on are are uh, linked uh, very, very closely. So anyway, that's the, uh, I just wanted to share that with you, this injection that might be very helpful with those with PTSD. It's a Wall Street Journal article, uh, and the injection is called Stellate Ganglion Block. Uh, So with that team, I'm going to head into a quick break here. Uh, We're going to talk about Facebook and extremism and counterterrorism via censoring posts on the web. That and more coming up. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, we've got our friend Guy Benson on the line. He is townhall.com's political editor. He's also a Fox News contributor. Mr. Benson, good to have you. Mr. Sexton, how are you? Good. Uh, So I want to talk about your piece up on townhall.com that Trump firing Mueller isn't happening unless Trump is really guilty or has a political death wish. Uh, I tend to agree. I I think that if, if Trump was using this as a trial balloon, it was to test the outer limits of what is possible, even in a Trumptastic world. Yeah, and it's interesting because the New York Times reported after that piece came out that his aides, Trump's aides, have been arguing vehemently against the notion of him firing Mueller, but there were some people who actually leaked that he was considering it to try to build pressure against it so he wouldn't go through with it. That's plausible to me, but I don't know if, it's necessarily true. Some of it was secondhand and anonymous sourcing, which I know a lot of people don't believe these days. Uh, but it, it sounds sort of Trumpish to me. Uh, my just hope is that one of the big takeaways from Comey's testimony was that at no time did President Trump or anyone else in the administration seek to impede or obstruct 
the Russia investigation. That is what Comey said, and that is also what Andrew McCabe, his successor at the FBI, the acting director, has also testified under oath. I just, to me, it would be absolutely bonkers, crazy, and self-destructive for Trump, for the first time, to intervene on the Russia probe in a way that would look super, super guilty, because people thought that he was obstructing the Russia probe. There's polling that shows a majority of Americans believe that he was interfering in that investigation. He was not. Comey and McCabe have both testified to that. If he fires Mueller, then it's like a giant red flag. It's it's as if the White House would be unfurling a banner over the South Portico saying, we're guilty. Yeah, I wonder if it's just to prepare the groundwork uh, or or to prepare the, the battlefield ahead uh, by a few in a few ways. One, you have them saying that Mueller and Comey are close, so maybe that's a part of this, right? So that if, if right. uh, things come out of this investigation, and already it, it seems, if you believe the reports, there have been some leaks, right? It should not be known publicly that Trump uh, that that Trump might be a target of criminal obstruction as uh, already at this stage. Um, but assuming that we're going to get more leaks throughout the course of the investigation, I think that some people around Trump's orbit, orbit want to make sure that that uh, there's at least some doubt about whether Mueller's a completely uh, objective actor here. But firing him would get right. rid of all. Firing him would would be too much. Yeah, it would be it would be extremely self-destructive and a self-inflicted wound. I mean, look, I do have questions about the degree to which. Comey and Mueller are really close friends and have been for years. Comey is a crucial witness in this case, and Mueller and he are extremely close. And I I do wonder how objective Mueller can be about Comey, but I also know a lot of people who have worked with him, who I really respect, who are, some of them are Trump defenders, who say Mueller's reputation speaks for itself. He is just a consummate professional in law enforcement um, agent who puts the law and the truth above everything else. And there's a reason why he was universally praised by virtually everyone across the ideological spectrum when uh, the deputy attorney general announced that he would be the special counsel in the case. Um, So, again, I I think it is reasonable to ask questions about his closeness with Comey. I think it is reasonable to point out that of the lawyers that he has hired who have donated to politicians, have donated almost exclusively to Democrats, including two of those three who maxed out to Hillary Clinton. These are pieces of the puzzle. But overall, I have confidence in Robert Mueller based on everything that I've heard and read about him, as do people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, And, you know, I, I think with Trump, And the whole Russia thing, the reason that he's allegedly or reportedly being investigated for obstruction is not because he tried to obstruct the Russia investigation, but because he fired Comey after Comey revealed that he had suggested or requested or expressed his wish that he could let the Michael Flynn matter go, which was like a tertiary side investigation, right? It it wasn't directly tied to the Russia stuff at all. So that would be another self-inflicted mistake by Trump. Um, And by the way, the reason, like, I'm not surprised at all by that Washington Post story that came out last night. 
that Trump might be, you know, the target of a potential obstruction investigation. And again, they haven't reached any conclusions. They're just looking into it. Uh, Comey basically telegraphed that that was the case during his during his hearings uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, it would be surprising if, if that was not the case. I mean, the, so the leak certainly seems yeah. very believable on its face. We're speaking to Guy Benson. He's Town Hall's uh, political editor. Guy, one more for you. Senate health care bill. A lot of secrecy around this. People are saying, well, what the heck's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think what they're doing is they want to make sure that they have it, – it's really tough to get to 50 votes in this Republican conference right now when it comes to Obamacare because you have – the Susan Collins of the world and the Lisa Murkowski's of the world who are centrists, who are very antsy about making big changes on Medicaid and other things. And you've got Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and Mike Lee who don't want to touch anything that falls way, way short of repeal, full repeal. So it is a tough balance. And they've got this working group trying to hammer out a compromise that could attract 50 votes in the Senate. They are, that's a very tough, uh, road to hoe. They have to calibrate it just right. And they also want to make sure that when the CBO gets a hold of the plan, they won't come in and totally blow it up. So I think they are trying to hold their negotiations close to the vest, come up with something that they can sort of uh, approach with a unified front, and then they will release, if they can get to that point, they will release legislation. I'm not a great fan of this opacity. I understand strategically why they're doing it. And I would also say once the bill exists and once it is released, it is going to not only be public and debated at great length. Because this is a reconciliation bill, there will be unlimited amendments to this legislation. They call it a votorama. They're going to debate and vote on amendments for this thing for as long as amendments are being offered. So the idea that this is all going to be just rammed through with no debate and no transparency and no public awareness and no ability to change anything, uh, that is literally impossible given the reconciliation uh, mechanism that they're using to try to pass this thing without getting to 60 votes. Guy Benson's latest can be read at townhall.com. Mr. Benson, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. It seems like a straightforward good idea. Let's keep terrorism and terrorist propaganda and ISIS beheading videos and some of the other uh, well-known digital tools of radicalization off the Internet to begin with. Now we see a series of articles, by the way, just today, talking about how Facebook is trying to do this. Uh, I learned something today. I did not realize that Facebook has uh, somebody who is the lead policy manager for counterterrorism. I didn't know that was a position that existed at Facebook. I didn't realize they had 150 specialists who work in 30 languages doing reviews of counterterrorism uh or doing reviews of, of material that has to do with terrorism. Uh, that's something that's, that's new to me. Um, and they're now putting in place artificial intelligence uh, algorithms to accompany the human review process here. Now, I, I understand the impulse. People radicalize online. Those radicals then engage in terrorist attacks. They kill people. So this is a very serious problem. 
But oftentimes, uh, actions, whether by governments or, in this case, entities that have the power of governments but function as private corporations, places like Facebook, uh, can have unintended consequences. You have Theresa May, after the attacks in London, well, after the attack in Manchester and the attack in London, uh, saying that she would like there to be, she demands that there uh, are more efforts put in place to stop uh, online terrorist propaganda. Now, that's been underway for quite some time. This is not a new problem, and this is not a new idea, which then brings us to the how do you do this? I know the devil is, in fact, in the details. Uh, The implementation of counter-radicalization programs on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter is inherently going to run into some problems. The first problem, and I, I know that Facebook has got seemingly endless piles of cash and personnel and geniuses, and I'm just some guy at a radio mic, what do I know? Uh, The first problem they're going to run into, though, is that the social media platforms uh, are not really where the terrorist propaganda is necessarily being shared. Sure, some of it is. And there'll be people that are using, you know, hashtag uh, ISIS attack or they'll be talking about how they support it using Twitter or Facebook. Um, But there are other platforms as well. In fact, there are constantly new communication platforms out there uh, that are freely downloadable and have new forms of encryption technology. And these are used, of course, for more secure communications, people that are trying to avoid the prying eyes of government. And so even if you get Facebook and Twitter to have 100% efficacy, if if it works 100% of the time that they take extremist propaganda off the internet, you're not going to get all extremist, terrorist, jihadist propaganda off the internet. You're just going to get some some portion of it. Uh, and then you get into the, I think, the even more complicated issue, because, because they won't deny or doubt or argue that point. They're always going to be, as long as there are platforms where people can communicate on the internet and it's user-generated content, as long as there are basic text and video and, and photo sharing platforms on the internet, they'll find some way to uh, exchange terrorist propaganda, and even more than that, to uh, communicate for the purposes of plotting and and executing attacks. The remote-controlled terrorist attack, uh, which has been written about now a number of times in in response to some mass casualty attacks, is where individuals who are, let's say, in Raqqa, in Syria, are in such close communication with a jihadist in France or anywhere for that matter, and continuous communication, that they are directing aspects of the plot. They are telling the person, they're telling the terrorist where to surveil, where to get weapons, how to get material, precursor materials for explosives. So it's almost like a virtual terrorism tutor. uh, And that has been going on with a number of major plots. So as long as you have people able to communicate and generate their own content online and and share information, there will be people that use that for ill. You know, I, I think that the same way that we understand that a, a mafia boss can use a phone to order a, a hit on somebody, it doesn't mean that the phone is bad. Um, and, you know, you, you could write, go back to letters and, you know, written word, and 
there's no shortage of means of communicating uh, information that, that is harmful, um, whether we're talking about terrorism or any number of, of other issues. But to think that we can accurately and successfully police it is uh, fraught with problems. Now, I'm not sure that it's I'm not going to say that it's not worth trying. Facebook's already trying it. So are Twitter. And much of that is driven by uh, user uh, users flagging the information. You know, you can flag a post if you think it's inappropriate. So there's that level of human review. Although I got to say, I, I don't know if I saw a really horrific ISIS video I'm not sure I want to be the one who was flagging this for a review. If you, I just feel like you're raising your hand like, hey, look what I found. and That's not necessary. I just make me a little uncomfortable, I'm just saying. Uh, but the human review process is essential because the algorithms are just not in a place now where they're going to be able to make those distinctions. And I also have to say uh, there's a problem here of keeping information and keeping propaganda out of the hands or away from the eyes of people like me who want access to it to study it. You know, I'm no longer in the government. I don't have access to classified. I don't know any of the secret stuff anymore. I, I just uh, have open source like everybody else. And I would really like to be able to do in-depth research sometimes on uh, the videos that are put out there, the propaganda the Islamic State is using, is utilizing. And to pull that off the internet um, is one, as I said, it's impossible. So you get into the cost benefit analysis of, of doing it even in the first place. And, and also, it deprives someone like me of uh, research material to try and understand better how they're doing this terrorism, to raise the alarm about uh, the radicalization process that goes on. So those, those are concerns uh, that I have about it. Um, and then once you've even looked, and this is just about technical implementation, right? This is, will it, assuming that this is a good idea, will it work? And I think the answer is it'll only work in part. Oh, and by the way, I, I also fear that once you get used to banning content online, remember, we're talking about content here. Uh, once you get used to that, uh, even if it's under a terms of service provision, it becomes uh, a short leap to say that you know having that material at all now makes you suspect. Uh, so I, I would not want to live in a country where having an Anwar al-Awlaki video on your computer, absent other criminal activity, criminal steps, was, in somehow, uh, was somehow a problem or could cause you problems because I might just want to know who this guy is. You know, Anwar al-Awlaki is obviously dead now, but I just want to know who this guy is that's radicalizing people, how he does it. I'm not radicalized. Uh, terrorism researchers, or just people that want to understand what's going on in the world of terrorism, you don't want it. You don't want to feel like, well, if I send around the latest copy of of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's Inspire magazine, I, I'm I'm not distributing terrorist propaganda. I'm sharing it with people so they can know what the bad guys are trying to do, and, and that starts to feel a little, you know, that 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 puts you in an uncomfortable place, right? But the most uh, troublesome aspect of this, perhaps, is what qualifies as extremist propaganda. Uh, and in this New York Times piece, I know I've been bashing in the Times a lot today, uh, they quote uh, someone named J.M. Berger, who's a fellow with the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague. He said, a large part of the challenge for companies like Facebook is figuring out what qualifies as terrorism 
a definition that might apply to more than statements in support of groups like the Islamic State. Uh, the problem, as you, by the way, and that is, now you are in the realm of suppressing speech, too, right? If somebody says that they think that ISIS, uh, ISIS is doing good things in Syria, uh, that's going to get pulled off of Facebook. Are we also going to start to say that that's, are we going to say that's illegal? When do you cross over into material support? When do you cross over into giving aid and comfort to the enemy? I mean, these are very worthwhile questions. But back to this Jam Burger guy, he writes or said, the problem, as usual, is determining what is extremist and what isn't, and it goes further than just jihadists. Are they just talking about ISIS and al-Qaeda, or are they going to go further to deal with white nationalism and neo-Nazi movements? Well, my friends, based on the mainstream media's view of sites, including Breitbart.com, sites that are uh, widely read in conservative Republican circles, uh, will some of those sites, perhaps, or some of the articles they write, fall under this new social media censorship policy? Facebook and Twitter and Google, these are entities that have more power than any media entity since the days of three TV networks. I mean, these are... uh, these companies are so powerful in the molding of perception that if they open themselves up to politicize censorship, and and if they do this in the open, I should say, uh, the consequences of this could be profound. Think about this. Now they're going to be monitoring and and removing extremist content. Does that mean anti-immigrant content? Does that mean... Uh, shutting down the borders? Does that mean building a wall? Does that mean, you know, what qualifies as, quote, white nationalism? I don't think you could get a definition of that from most major media outlets right now that wouldn't seem politically uh, biased or, or perhaps intended to encompass a lot more than just white nationalism to more mainstream right wing ideology. So we have to keep a close eye on this because. They are shifting and molding and in some cases even dictating perception and pulling extremist material off the Internet is almost impossible. And then, of course, you have to sit around and think, what exactly are they going to treat as extremist? A Republican's extremist? We'll be right back. Just because she lost the election, don't think that you will be free of Hillary Clinton popping up in your news feed in the months and years ahead. She's going to continue giving overpaid speeches, though not for nearly as much money as before. I wonder why that is. I wonder why the market is reflecting a drop in Clinton's marketability for speeches. Um, And she's going to obviously be trotted out, uh, particularly for feminist uh, causes of all kinds, and she appeared in a uh, in a video recently for Elizabeth Banks, who is a, uh, a nice actress, nice looking actress, uh, who is a friend and supporter of Clinton. Can I just stop for a second? Why are they, why would some why would some actress be a friend and support? I mean, supporter, fine, friend of Hillary Clinton's. What is cool about Hillary Clinton? I mean, I guess actors and actresses are so used to. Uh, worshiping fame and power that to be near somebody even who is 
as lacking in coolness and lacking in uh, graciousness and, and warmth. Like, why would you want to be Hillary Clinton's friend if you're just some actress? Well, of course, because it's all about connections and power. But I just think it's kind of funny. Like, that, Let's just be clear about what I'm saying here. So, like, Hillary Clinton's cool, right? If you're in Hollywood, you, you act like Hillary Clinton's cool. She she. Ah, she's really cool. She gives really expensive speeches, and she's amazing. She is, uh, not the worst, but among the worst. So she's out in Hollywood, and she gave this taped speech, and I just have to play a little bit of this for you. Commitment to lifting up women directors, producers, writers, composers, and executives has made such a difference. Now, I haven't seen Wonder Woman yet, but I'm going to, in part because it's directed by the fabulous Patty Jenkins. But something tells me that a movie about a strong, powerful woman fighting to save the world from a massive international disaster is right up my alley. Oh, man, she did it. She did it. She compared herself to Wonder Woman. No, don't compare yourself to Wonder Woman. Now I now I don't want to see that movie anymore. Now I have I have no interest in seeing Wonder Woman. This makes me this makes me so sad. This makes me so sad on the inside. What will what will I do now? I I've heard it's a good movie by the way. Uh, I've heard I've read I have heard and read good things about it. Uh, and I like superhero movies. I I appreciate the escapism of people having superpowers and the good versus evil paradigm where where it's clear uh, I feel like far too much these days in the realm of entertainment is always based in the, well, there's really no good guys and no no bad guys. It's just people making different decisions. I feel like uh, Game of Thrones, as innovative as it is sometimes, is a little bit, uh, little bit too morally obtuse for my liking. I'm still going to watch all of it, obviously. But uh, yeah, Hillary's out there uh, doing her thing, giving speeches in Hollywood. And I'm always just blown away by... I understood Hollywood embracing Barack Obama in the way that they did because he does give a good speech and, and he does have uh, a charisma. But, I mean, Hillary Clinton? This is like when I watched Parks and Rec, which is one of my favorite shows, although you should start with season two and just skip the rest of it. Or, sorry, skip the first season entirely and just start with two and watch it from there. But the main character gets all excited about meeting Madeleine Albright. I was just like, what, what, really? and Joe Biden you know this is these are supposed to be cool people they're supposed to be celebrities not just politicians it's pretty remarkable stuff anyway yeah hillary's i'm like wonder woman uh she is not in fact like wonder woman that that is a an untrue that is an untrue statement about hillary clinton that uh, well she didn't say it outright but she certainly uh, implied that there was a similarity there and that's a similarity that uh <laughs> I'm hoping I can erase that from my memory so I can actually go and enjoy uh, Wonder Woman. I, I might go to the movies. You know, I, I usually don't because I find that people are rude at movie theaters now. There's no enforcement. It's like civilization has ceased to uh, enforce its movie theater rules. Um, you know, you shouldn't be talking during the movies. People who hold up their phone so that you see the bright screen when you're in the dark theater... That's super annoying. Uh, and just the, the whole experience, I find the chairs uncomfortable. I know I'm sounding like I'm sounding like I'm telling people to get off my lawn and I'm being grumpy about this. But I just 
Wonder Woman, I might go see. Maybe, maybe, not this weekend. I got to go to a wedding, but uh, maybe next weekend I'll go check it out. Uh, regardless of Hillary trying to ruin it for me, because Hillary's so good at that. Very talented at ruining things for me. Team, it is a, an honor and a pleasure, as always, to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, please do check out BuckSexton.com. We post stories there throughout the day in preparation for what we're going to be talking about here on the show um already got a lot of fun things planned for tomorrow a little freestyle friday action action movie quotes will of course be in effect and so if you want to think of some now and call in tomorrow we'll see if you can get some by the action movie quote master yours truly uh and uh obviously go to facebook.com slash buck section to share your thoughts there until tomorrow my friends thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me here in the freedom hunt Shields high.